Thank you, Carl. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. I hope that you're feeling well, that you're optimistic. But if you're not, we're going to open God's Word and see some reasons why we can. I don't want you to answer this question out loud. I just want you to think about it. Here's the question. Why did Jesus die? That is a deep question, isn't it? Why did Jesus die? There are multiple true answers to that question. One answer is to get rid of the sting of death, which is sin, and to defeat death itself. That's true. We find that in 1 Corinthians 15. That's good news. (laughs) Here's another one from Hebrews 12. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because of what he would accomplish in the future, because of what he was about to do in dying for the sins of the world. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's another true answer. Here's another one. To reverse the curse of the fall, all that has gone wrong since the beginning in the fall, and to destroy the works of the devil. We find that in 1 John chapter 3. That's another reason why he died. You could also turn to the passages about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and see that Jesus died to usher in the new covenant that God had promised. That's another true answer. All of these are true answers. But there's one that I want to focus on a little bit toward the end of the message, which is this. Jesus died because he was submitting to his Father's will. On the night he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was experiencing a foretaste, a taste of what the wrath of God would be and experiencing hell for his people, he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He submitted to the will of his father. We're going through the book of Ruth, if you haven't noticed, And somehow we're already more than halfway done. (laughs) More than halfway done going through Ruth. We're calling it a case study of love. Ruth lived an expert life of love. And it's inspiring. But our hope and our prayer is that we would be more than only inspired by Ruth and the selfless love that she lived. But also to be drawn to the same God of love that she had faith in. And that she followed. The main idea for the passage today as we continue in the story is this. Love continues to give generously because it submits graciously. That's what I see in the text today. Love continues to give generously because it submits graciously. So we're going to talk about how love gives generously. We see it both in Boaz and also in Ruth in verses 15 through 20. And then how love accepts authority, how love submits, in verses 21 through 23. We can continue, not just one time, not just a one-off, but to live a life of continual generosity and of giving because we are submitting to our God. Love continues to give generously because it submits graciously. Love gives generously. We see it in verses 15 through 20. And how it gives both for external needs and one of the results of that when we give generously, materially, physically, it can also give to our internal 
needs, hope, optimism for the future. Love gives generously. First, let's talk about for external needs in verses 15 through 18. I'm going to refresh your memory, those first three verses. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So it says, first of all, she rose to glean. Here we have Ruth again showing us her character, her work ethic. It's after lunchtime, the beautiful lunch that we talked about last week that Boaz provided for his workers and called over Ruth to eat with them. She's the first to get up and to get back to work. She was comforted by what Boaz said, the specific welcome that he gave, telling her that he would protect her, that she's welcome to come back to this field time and time again until the end of the barley harvest, three or four more months. She appreciated that. She was comforted by that. But she wasn't going to stop working hard. She gets up first, and she goes out, and she continues to glean the fields. She continues to work. Boaz continues to scheme of how to give lavishly for Ruth. So here's what he does. He tells his young men, let her glean among the sheaves and even pull out some of the bundles for her. Boaz is going way beyond what was just required of him as an Israelite landowner. Let me just remind her for you. The Israelites were commanded within the covenant given to them through Moses. In Leviticus 19, we see it and elsewhere, that if they owned a field... They were not allowed to glean the corners of those fields. They were to be for the poor, for the sojourner, for those for the needy. They would be able to come in and take what they wanted and glean themselves. If they had a vineyard and fruit fell to the ground, they were not to pick those up. They were to be left for the poor, for the needy, for the sojourner, for those passing through. Embedded within their economic way of life was a way to give, a way to have a, an opportunity for the poor and the needy and the sojourner, to provide for themselves. We are not Israelites today under the Mosaic Covenant. I'm not, I don't think I know anybody who owns a field. However, there's a principle here for us, that if God, with his people, expect not just a, an, a, if you have extra, but within the very economic way of life, they were expected to be giving to those in need. What are our proverbial modern-day fields? What are the ways that we, that we are intentional to be giving? Not just as an extra, but a way of properly representing who God is, of being a giving community. He gives to her. He's, but he's going not just the bare minimum here of gleaning the corners of the fields. We see at this point that he is, as Miller says in his commentary, grabbing cash by the fistful for Ruth. She ends up with an ephah of barley. How much barley is that? Apparently, it's about 30 pounds worth, <laughs> which is about a month's worth of food for herself, and she lives with Naomi, her mother-in-law, about two weeks of food after only one day's work, grabbing cash by the fistful. And he's getting his, his workers involved, creating a culture of generosity, having them pull out the bundles, getting them involved with it. Can you imagine if your boss says, we're going to give out a lot of my resources today, you know, for free. That would be pretty fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> he gets his coworkers involved with it, those he's in charge of. You know, generosity can be contagious. 
We've seen how Boaz has been impressed with Ruth and the life, the decisions that she was making and her generosity toward her mother-in-law with her life. And now he is being generous to her. Not just that, he's getting his workers involved. Fear can be contagious. Stinginess can be contagious. But also generosity can be contagious. He made a bigger impact, not just himself being generous to Ruth, but getting those around him involved. We can make a bigger impact, not when we're just generous ourselves, but when we're part of a generous, generously loving community. God had his covenant people, the Israelites, to be a generous people to those in need. And he calls his church today to be a generous people, a generous community as well. And while the church hasn't always represented that the way it's supposed to or called to do it, we have seen throughout history many great examples of how the church has represented the Lord well in this area. I wanted to choose one example from the 4th century. There was a Roman emperor, Julian, who hated Christianity and, uh, but couldn't help but admit the way that the Christians were generous, both to their own people and to the people in the Roman Empire. There's a quote by him that says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians, he didn't believe, as their character to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only food for their own poor, but for ours as well. He's like, I don't like them. (laughs) I don't like what they believe, but man, you can't help but credit to them the way that they're giving and caring, not just for their own people, but for the community around them. We want to be a church that's generous both internally, taking care of one another, generous towards one another. Part of all of our giving goes towards a benevolency fund where we can help each other out in times of need. We want to be generous to one another, but we also want to be a church that's generous beyond the four walls of the church, in our communities, the places where we live, and all of that. There's many opportunities of how we can do that. I know many of you already are. I presented to you... I'm terrible with time, like six weeks ago, I don't know, when we did the church planning Sunday slash outreach Sunday, and we talked about some of the ways that we can be um, doing outreach and serving. One of them was called Care Portal, and this November, November 2nd, there's going to be two, maybe three of our tribes that are going to begin serving along with Care Portal, and I explained more in detail what Care Portal's all about, but let me explain it uh, this way. Imagine a social worker goes to somebody's house, a family's house, and there's, from pre-born to 21 years old is one of the qualifications, and there's a need for the family, someone in that age range, maybe they just got brought into that family, maybe they just lost one of their parents, maybe some situation um, out of their control happened, and now they are in need of some kind. They have a need, it's a qualified need that the social worker posts onto the central database where we simply type in our zip code, see the different needs around us. Maybe they need a bed, maybe they need school supplies, fill in the blank, all these different needs they may have. There are different churches, businesses that raise money um, to provide for those needs, but then they need teams of people to say, we can do that one, and then go to that person's house and provide that need for them. And there are churches around, there's one in Schenectady especially that has done, um, has done thousands of these um, trips and services for those in need. And I'm excited for the long term for our church to get involved with this. It's an opportunity to be generous to those in our communities, to meet needs, to build relationships, all of that. And I'm looking forward to what the Lord's going to do for it. 
And so November 2nd, two or three of our tribes are going to start with that. If you have any interest in that at all and you want to hear more about it, come talk to me or you can email me about it, tori at terranovachurch.org. And um, either way, can we be praying for the ways that the Lord can use us to be generous to our communities around us? Boaz was creating a generous community. He did it by getting his workers involved. But then big surprise, not really, before you get to the end of this passage, we see Ruth again being generous herself. In verse 18, she, Ruth, took it up, the food that she just took, the 30 pounds of barley, and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So the lunch that Ruth had left over from her time with Boaz that day, she kept some of it in order to bring it back home and not only to, to give the 30 pounds of food that she just gleaned, but also leftovers that they had prepared from lunch. It's hard to find an example where we don't see Ruth trying and having some opportunity to care for Naomi. We always find her loving and we see her doing it again. She's generous, giving and giving and giving. Have you heard the words of Jesus where he says, it's better to give than it is to receive? It's better to give than it is to receive. I know that's something that he's, it's a work in progress for me, where he's continuing to teach me that and show me that it's better to give than it is to receive. But I shared to you not terribly long ago an example of, I know that I'm not where I'm going to be, but I all, as, as far as the, the generous person that God is calling me to be, but I'm also not what I was. <laughs> I remember thinking about growing up in um, central New Jersey and the way that my parents would generously give to people in our community, and especially through food, <laughs> of just bringing food to people, inviting people over, neighbors, friends. And when late teenage years, I started to realize about how much money that was costing. And I had those thoughts of, that could be spent on this, or that, or me. <laughs> and um, yeah, but I look back at that, and I'm just so grateful. And I'm, so, I'm just inspired by that and want to be a person who's growing in generosity. But to be somebody who is generous, not just one time, not just um, a spur of the moment, but continually for our life, it has to be more than just being told to every once in a while. It has to be more than just trying to look good because you're somebody who gives. It has to be more than just to be, to make your neighborhood better and, and give to make that happen. It has to be because of the beauty of the lavish gospel. It has to be because we're part of a group of followers of our king who gave and gave and gave to the point where he would give his own body and blood to pay for us. That has to be the motive, not just a one-off, but a life of continued generosity when we're submitted to a God like that. Ruth continues to give. Throughout the story, she gives, and she gives to Naomi. And I wanted to point out this. I'm actually taking something that's mentioned later in Ruth, but I can't help it. It's so good. So I'm going to say it twice. (laughs) Ruth is a woman of noble character, of consistent character. And that phrase, noble character, is used in Ruth. It's only used two other times in Scripture, and it's in the Proverbs. It's found in Proverbs 12, and it's found in Proverbs 31. A woman of noble character. If you know anything about Proverbs 31, that's the passage of the, the ideal 
godly woman. And the Hebrews organized the Old Testament, same books, Genesis through Malachi that we have, but they organized it a bit differently than we do. They put the book of Ruth after the book of Proverbs, as if to say after Proverbs 31, the example of the woman of noble character, you want to see what that looks like? Read Ruth (laughs) right after it. She continues over and over again to show the gospel through these acts of giving and of service. Love gives generously for our external needs, but also for our internal ones. It can lead to hope, optimism for the future when people give like that. Look at, look at how it does it for Naomi, verses 19 through 20. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So here's the scene. Ruth walks in with 30 pounds of barley and drops it on the floor. It probably would have made a little bit of a noise because of how big it was. And Naomi, in excitement, starts to ask these questions. Where were you today? Where'd you go? Who helped you? She realized that no matter how hard Ruth worked, she must have received some help. And she did. Who helped her? Boaz. Now, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, Naomi said. And I'm going to explain that in a second. But before we get to that, see the picture here. Because of Because of Ruth's commitment to Naomi and her hard work of getting up early to go out to provide materially, physically for her, she now has brought her, much more than that, hope for the future. Boaz was part, a close relative of Naomi's. Somebody, for the first time, Naomi realizes, maybe her clan of the Ephrathites may not have died out for good. If Boaz does marry Ruth, the line of the Ephrathites can continue, and that brings her hope for the future. He was a kinsman redeemer. We're going to start to dig in a little bit today. Today's going to be the Redemption Sunday to talk about what is, what is a redeemer? What is a kinsman redeemer? What is all this about? So before we get to the kinsman redeemer, what does it mean to redeem at all? What is redemption? To redeem, if I had to summarize it in four words, is the payment of a ransom. To redeem is a payment of a ransom. So if somebody is in need of ransom, they're in need of a payment, they're in need of something that they can't provide themselves. They're in a situation that they cannot solve on their own. They need help. They need somebody to pay. I have to say, throughout the Old Covenant, God set up a system, a sacrificial system, to teach the Israelites over and over and over again that they were in a situation that they could not pay on their own when it came to their sins when it came to their failures and their mistakes. They needed to take an innocent, without blemish animal to be sacrificed for their sins. And we'll talk more about that and what that was pointing to when we get to Hebrews, because there's a lot in there about the sacrificial system. Over and over again, teaching them that. But also embedded within the Israelite families were something called kinsmen redeemers. Family members given responsibility, not necessarily for for involving sin, but some ways of of helping, rescuing, getting a family member out of a situation that they can't get out of themselves. And I have for you a quote from 
a loving life about the kinsman redeemer. It was a male member of the clan who rescued another member who had fallen on hard times. Every male head of a family was a potential redeemer. A redeemer was a unique personalization of the law that provided not just rules, but a person. A redeemer could restore property, purchase a relative out of slavery, avenge a a relative's killing, assist in a lawsuit, and ensure that justice is served for a relative, or marry the widow of his deceased brother. Redeemers in this way appear to be unique for the nation of Israel. And there's a lot more we could say about that, but what I want to point out is how it uniquely pointed to the Redeemer, capital R, Jesus, an Israelite who was to come, who would offer to take ownership not just for some parts of our lives, but for all of it, who would purchase all of his people out of slavery, the slavery that we have been in since the fall, held captive to sin and all of the repercussions that come because of it. He came to pay something we couldn't pay for ourselves. It's what redemption's all about. Mark 10 said, he came to give his life as a ransom, as a payment. 1 Peter 1 says, you were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemished. Your life is not your own. You have been purchased. So glorify the Lord with your body. He came. Another quote from Loving Life says, As Jesus went about healing the sick, caring for the poor, including the outsider, he was being the redeemer Israel never had. He completed Israel. But he also died to redeem the world. God didn't send a book of instructions, but his son. He didn't only give advice, but himself, his flesh. He didn't only show us how to live for others. He did it himself all the way to the end, and he did it at great and personal cost. He paid a price we could never afford, and he did it with himself. Now, Some of us may be hearing this and think to ourselves something like, do I really need to be redeemed? Is there a price that I can't pay? Am I in a situation that I can't get out of myself? Is that really something for me? I know the Bible talks about it. I know it talks about God redeeming, paying the price. But I've never been in a situation that I couldn't get out of myself. I've always been able to figure out a way to get out of it. Do I need a redeemer? Well, one of the insidious lies of sin is convincing us that we don't really have it, that it's not as bad as the word says it is, that we're not really captive to it. So I want to talk a little bit more about sin and get us thinking a little bit if we're truly enslaved to it or not. Some of what I'm about to mention is fine in and of itself. But it's not just a want for it, it's a need for it. And it's not just a good thing in life, but something that controls us. 
something that has us captive? What are we controlled by? Are you controlled by pride? Pride in your appearance. Pride in your abilities. Pride in your work. Pride in your family. Pride in your intelligence. Is it something that controls you? What about greed? How much self-control do you really have about where your money goes? About what, how you use your resources? Do you have a hard time being truly thankful or do you find yourself constantly jealous about what other people have, both here and far away? What about lust? How much control do you really have with your eyes? And more than your eyes, your thoughts. What about comfort? Do you find yourself saying no to all kinds of different opportunities and following the Lord or just generally doing good things because you're afraid you might not have this or that comfort? We were, we were watching The Hobbit, and Bilbo Baggins almost didn't go on the journey of his life because he didn't want to give up his little comfort here and his little comfort there. And he talked, luckily he did, but he almost didn't. Don't miss the opportunities God has for us because it might cost you a comfort or two. Does comfort control you? Food, as good as it is, can be something that controls us. Philippians 3 says, Paul says their God is their stomach and their mind is set on earthly things. Is food more than just a good thing but something that actually controls your life? What about power, the need to be in control Obsession with authority. You can't enjoy something. You can't enjoy an event unless you're the one running it. Does the need to be in control actually control you? What about guilt? You live in the past because you can't get over some mistake that you made. You think, if I only didn't do it, if I only didn't say it, then my life would be different. And it controls your thoughts. And if it's not guilt, maybe it's shame which is, it's not something specific that you've done, but it's an overall embarrassment of being who you are. It's not sin that you've done that's, that bothers you. It's just not being okay with yourself. Maybe it's people-pleasing, the need to be accepted by others, and you find yourself almost as a different person depending on who you're around and the environments that you're in. Maybe it's apathy. At the end of it all, you don't actually care. You don't care about what God thinks or what anyone else thinks. At the, end of the day, at the end of the day, if it doesn't affect you, it doesn't bother you. Maybe it's anger. The inability to control when you get mad at yourself or at others, and you use it as a weapon, and you're worried at times, what are you actually capable of with that anger of yours? Do you have control over it? Maybe you're thinking, oh, good thing he didn't say the thing that really affects me, and I will just say, fill in the blank. What question didn't I ask? What didn't I say? What is it that has control over your life? What, at the end of the day, is really affecting the decisions that you make at the bottom of it all? The decisive reason you do the things that you do. You see, we need more than advice. We need more than a pep talk. We need more than a program. We need more than a book of rules. We need a savior. 
We need God to pay for something we could never pay for ourselves to get us free. So that we're no longer captives, but sons and daughters. He purchases our freedom. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, as I went through some of those, just some examples of what could hold us captive, maybe you're in a place of just praising God for what you used to be and the ways that God has freed you from some of those things that used to keep you captive. And while you're not what you will be, none of us have arrived yet to process, you're not what you were. And you praise God for the freedom that you've seen. In the five years that I've been here, I've seen so much freedom in the lives of people in our church and so much growth and growth in my own life and so many reasons to praise God for that. Maybe you're here and it's a good time to just praise the Lord for how he set you free. Or maybe you're here and you hear that and you're beginning to realize just how captive you are. And you've tried a lot of ways to get out of it and to be set free, but you haven't because you haven't yet turned to the one who can break those chains, not reorganize them, not attach them to something else, but set you free. And my hope for you is this. If you're in, if you're in a tribe, one of our life groups, and you haven't talked about that yet, don't wait for a retreat to do it. Don't wait for some... Spe- just open up to the people that you're walking through life with and talk about it. If you're here, maybe and you're not in one, of our, in one of our tribes, or maybe you are, and for it's, it's never still a bad idea to get together and to pray with somebody here after the service. I want to see us become, it's great to talk about all kinds of things after services, and that's whatever we want to talk about. But I would love to see more and more Sundays where after service I'm seeing people pray with each other. I'm seeing people talk about the ways that God is working in their life and the changes they want to see made and the progress they want to see in their lives and just getting together and praying for somebody. I thought about it on the way here. I was like, I bet if I, if I asked, if you're here and somebody came up to you after the service and asked, do you mind praying with me or for me? I bet over three quarters of you would stand up and say, yeah, I would, I would be glad to pray. I'd be glad to pray with you. Anyone you see up here on the stage is glad to pray with you. We have plenty of people here that are glad to pray. Eventually, we're going to have a post-service prayer team of people just specifically that you can see that are saying, we would love to pray for you after the service. We want freedom. Christ paid for our freedom. And he wants us to walk in that freedom. So back to the story. (laughs) Ruth, because of the way that she worked hard to provide, to give, to give generously to Boaz, uh, to Boaz, to Naomi, it brought Naomi not just the external needs that she had, but also the internal ones. Hope, hope for the future. There could be a hope for the line of her clan. Naomi thought the rest of her life was going to be bitter. She changed her name to bitterness, but she wasn't defined by her circumstances. God is active and alive then and now, involved in our lives, and brings hope now and for the future. Love continues to give generously 
And one of the reasons it does that, not just for a moment, but for a lifetime, is because we're submitted to our God, to our God who gives graciously. Love accepts authority, verses 21 through 23, says, And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You will keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Love accepts the authority both of the people God has put in our life, of authority over us, and the authority of God. Love accepts the authority of people. Do you notice the difference between what Boaz told Ruth and then what Naomi told Ruth? It's a little subtle. Boaz told Ruth, stick by my young men for the rest of barley harvest. The next three or four months, stick by them. She goes home, she tells her mother-in-law, and Naomi says, good idea, stick by her young women. (laughs) Men, women. Naomi, Ruth did not lash out against Naomi. You weren't even there today, and you're telling me what to do. She just accepts it. She just submits. I think one of the fears we have of submitting to authority is we're afraid we're going to lose ourselves. We're going to lose our identity. We're going to not be able to to make the decisions that we want to happen and be the, the change in our lives. But Naomi, Ruth found that submitting to Naomi wasn't as, challenge, wasn't as challenging because she had already submitted her life to God. She had committed to stay in Bethlehem until after, even after Naomi died for the rest of her life, worshiping the true God, not going back to Moab. She had committed her life to the Lord. And while accepting the authority of people, maybe as kids when we don't understand as much why it can be difficult to, to submit, And then it gets maybe even more difficult the older we get because we know more and we realize how we could do it better or how they're wrong about these other things. And submission can be challenging. But when we submit to the Lord, we have the opportunity to show his grace, show his patience, show even his submission when we submit to others. What do I mean by his submission? Well, if Jesus didn't lose any of his divinity if he didn't become any less human or less God when he submitted to his heavenly father, we don't become less when we submit either. John 6 says, Jesus said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he said in Matthew in the garden, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even in the moment of his greatest dread, knowing what the next day held for him, he submitted to the will of his heavenly father. Healthy submission in our lives to God first is not life taking, it's life giving. To say yes to to our master, to our Lord, to God, but also to our loving God, to our heavenly father, whose plan all along was to rescue us, was to pay for our freedom through the very blood of Christ. And through him, as he works in our lives, as he works in our church, we can, not just a one-off, not just every now and then, but continue to be a generous people. Let's pray. Father, you... You know the captivity 
that all of mankind is in. Ever since the fall, ever since the rebellion, ever since choosing, and as we do so often, to go our own way, to follow our own ideas, to trust ourselves or somebody else or some system or some, rather than you. It just leads to chains and more chains. But Jesus, thank you for coming and for paying the price of our freedom, for setting us free. We are free in you. Lord, as we celebrate communion, would you help us to walk in that freedom? And Lord, I pray for any of us who just knows we need, we need you. We need you to intervene in our lives. We need you to give the freedom that you've secured so freely for us. Help us be a community that reaches out for prayer. Today, throughout the week, in our tribes, help us be open, vulnerable with one another, humbly knowing that we need you, we need each other. And help us be a church as we submit to you, the one who is lavishly giving. That we would be a people beyond generous. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.